1: Ah, welcome back to Hurtel. Tell. Okay, one of my personal favorites, because she's also serves as my editor. She's a senior editor at Ordinary-Times.com. Um, she is a lawyer, but she is not your lawyer, so all her legal advice does not apply to you. Do not try to claim it does, unless you're going to pay her for it first. Jim Carpenter, how are you, ma'am?
0: I'm doing well, Andrew. How are you?
1: Good. Good to have you back. All right, you're in your wheelhouse at Ordinary-Times.com. This piece actually got picked up by a couple different outlets and got some coverage Um, you are a true crime aficionado on top of being one of them lawyery kind of people. You like this stuff. You watch forensic files. You listen to all these podcasts. You read about true crime stuff. For folks that don't know who Dr. Henry Lee is, who we're going to be talking to, the true crime genre, for lack of a better word, of the last, oh, I don't know, 20, 30 years, and especially in the, what we've called before when we've talked to you, the CSI era, the era where people are really understanding how criminal investigation works, at least the Hollywood version of it, of things like DNA testing and things like this. A lot of the true crime folks know who this person is, this Dr. Henry Lee. He was kind of a celebrity in a lot of ways, and now he's found himself into some trouble.
0: Yes, Dr. Lee has been um, sort of a a rock star in the forensic science world going back to the 1980s. Really made a name for himself when the defense called him as a witness in the O.J. Simpson trial in the 90s. uh, And he had testified critical of how some of the bloody evidence was collected at the scene of um, the murders of Nicole Simpson and Ronald Brown. And he sort of uh, painted a picture of some cross-contamination and sort of made that DNA evidence that seems so strong, uh, kind of cast it in a dubious light. And uh, some of the jurors were swayed by that. We know how that turned out. And that's kind of where he became well-known. He was actually featured in the very first episode of Forensic Files when he was... um, He was the director of the Connecticut State Crime Lab, and he had actually uh, helped to secure a conviction in a murder case of a woman named Hel Crafts, whose body was never found, but he was able to prove of her disposal via wood chipper. He was able to find remnants and... um, you know, that was sort of a, the case that picked off the forensic files and he was on, I think, four episodes over the years and just very well-known. He consulted on uh, many cases, including John JonBenet Ramsey case. I think he was involved in the early stages of the Kaylee Anthony case. So definitely a well-known name. So for him to have some doubt cast on his credibility, which we can get into how that came about, uh, it's, it's big news in, in the true crime world.
1: Yeah. And the reason it's big news is because what he's being accused of is a case from back in the 80s. So it predates his fame in a lot of ways. So yes. you can see where people go. We're like, well, wait a minute. If he has this wrongdoing, whether it was negligent or malicious or whatever, something didn't go right here. That's that part we know. That, yeah, predates, that predates everything else. So if that was bad. Then everybody's going to call in the question, and you've dealt with this as a prosecutor before, and you use a real life example we'll get to in a minute. Now you got to go back and question everything, and that's where the problem comes in.
0: Right? Yes, uh, and and that's just to to get some context about what he's been accused of doing and what a, a federal judge has found him uh, not guilty but liable for. Is this was a 1985 case? It was a very bloody murder, twenty seven stab wounds, I believe, including one to a jugular vein so very bloody scene and dr dr lee in his role with the as a state uh, forensics investigator came to the crime scene did some testing um there was, in particular there was a towel in the in a bathroom on the scene that he said it looked like it had blood stains on it and he um says he did some sort of a field test and that it was positive for blood. And that was important because the defendants in the case were found without blood on them. Um, And so he had not only testified later in their trial that it was possible for them to have committed this very bloody crime and had no blood on themselves, but there was also, it seemed like maybe a theory that this towel had been used for cleanup. So at the time that he had supposedly collected this evidence or tested this towel, they didn't have any suspects in mind. So it wasn't a case where he went into court and said, you know, we found the the victim's blood on the defendant and specifically uh, pointed a finger at these guys. However, you know, it was part of the state's case that perhaps this towel that had had blood on it was used uh, to clean up and that's why the defendants didn't have blood. So, Fast forward after these men spend decades in prison and there's additional testing conducted and now they say this towel, which has been sitting in evidence for decades, has no blood on it. And so that is the part that is shedding some um, dubious light on Dr. Lee's credibility is they're now saying, well, he said that he, he field tested this towel and it had blood on it. Testing now says there was no blood. Dr. Lee says that's ridiculous, it's been sitting in evidence for 20 years, there's been degradation, I stand by what I said back then. The problem is there's no trail, no paper trail, no records other than his testimony about this alleged field testing, which isn't really unusual. Field testing um, may not necessarily leave a paper trail, but that's neither here nor there uh, because these uh, men who were released from prison rightfully sued for their wrongful convictions and incarceration, and the judge in their their lawsuit uh, made a finding, a summary judgment, meaning without a, a jury having to try the facts of the case that, yes, Dr. Lee's testimony was incorrect or wrong or misrepresented the facts and that he was liable. And now it's just up to a jury to decide um, money damages. So that's where we are, and that's what um, has people left thinking. Well, if he lied or misrepresented or did this testing and was wrong, you know, what does that mean about all the other stuff that he has testified and all the other scientific evidence he's presented?
1: M. Carpenter joining us. This piece is at ordinary-times.com. We're going to link to it. Here, here's the problem, and this is a hard question because the technology, look the technology we're talking about with DNA testing from '85 to today, that's night and day that's medieval to space age it's it's a total gap how much of what we're talking about here because we can get in the weeds on the details of it how much of it when you're talking about these lab testing when you're talking about contamination cross-contamination degradation from sitting on a shelf how much of this stuff is just human error that's not even malicious it's just people didn't know what they were doing there was incompetence people cut corners things like that and then where is the line legally of malfeasance criminality and doing really bad things here because it seems like there's a big mess in the middle there where folks really don't know where that line is even the experts
0: right and and it it is and that's what it comes down to is a battle of the experts when you have a big case like this and you have experts on both sides you and, and one is saying, "Well, these are my findings," and then the other expert is saying, "Your findings are wrong because." And then we get down to basically a jury deciding which expert they find more credible or more likable, or you know, for whatever reason. It's hard to say what causes a jury to believe one over another, and it's not always um, what you <laughs> what you would expect. So, um, and juries love that that scientific evidence, and so it, it's really important. Um, in court, you know, you want your expert to win that battle of the experts because that's going to often be the deciding factor for a jury. And apparently in, you know, for example, the OJ case, they believe Dr. Lee um, over the expert pres- provided by the state. And that was before anyone really knew who Dr. Lee was. He may have been well known in his field, but he wasn't a household name. So, you know, it's crucial that the experts that are being put up in in front of juries on these cases know what they're doing and that the facts that they're presenting are accurate. Um, But even then, you know, you're subject to the whims of a jury, which is a whole other episode. But it's crucial that um, experts can be trusted, and that they are presenting the science in the uh, in a neutral and appropriate light. And as I mentioned in my piece for Ordinary Times, the prosecution's expert witnesses usually are state employees. They they are, you know, it's the state police crime lab, not the neutral, disinterested third party crime lab, that is um, usually bringing these results. So, you know. It's it, And on the other hand, defendants are paying these experts. But if they're uh, an indigent defendant and they have a court appointed lawyer, they don't have a lot of money, then you're back to the state paying that expert, which is always something that, you know, um, jurors should keep in mind. So, in, in weighing the neutrality of a witness, because if they're a paid expert, then you think, well, they're just just testifying to the facts um, that they're being paid to testify to, and you know, it, it's it gets tricky, it gets dicey. So, that's why it's so important that the integrity of the experts that are being presented is uh, in, impeccable.
1: Carpenter joining us, attorney, senior editor at Ordinary-Times.com. This gets to a bigger question about our legal system, but I like asking the bigger questions with stories like this because it's something important. There's really no such thing as a neutral jury. We're supposed to have a neutral justice system. We're supposed to have an adversarial justice system with the prosecution and defense fighting each other. That's the way it's designed. But there's no such thing as a neutral jury because a jury is made up of people and people have biases. That's where you get into this, and you touched in it on your piece. Do you weigh when a when a uh, expert witness is paid or not paid? Do you weigh because somebody's a state employee and might have a built in uh, bias towards the state? This is all stuff you deal with in a trial. It's an important part of our legal system. Trial lawyers spend a lot of money on how to deal with juries, but then that's also the part that we kind of don't talk a lot about on this stuff because of that CSI effect is just well the DNA settles it. no. You still present the D- DNA, but there's still 12 people you got to convince in there also, right?
0: Right. And lawyers do their voir dire, which is their questioning of the jury to try to pick the, the best jurors. And I don't know. Other lawyers may be better at it than I was, but I always felt like it was a flip a coin. Um, they... They always say that if you're a smart person, you're not on the jury because you figured out how to get out of it. Um, I don't know if that's necessarily the case. There's a lot of people who are interested in the criminal justice system or even the civil justice system and, you know, or just feel a, a sense of civic duty and make their way onto a jury. But, you know, you try to pick the most neutral ones. But if they have a, a vested interest in a case, they may want to answer those questions in such a way to make sure that they get on the jury. You know, you just never know you're they're under oath answering these questions and you hope they're being truthful and honest and you do your best based on your experience or sometimes the advice of other experts on jury selection to try to choose the, the best juror for your case. Um, and you kind of do the opposite and try to strike and get rid of the jurors that you feel are going to have a bias against your client or for a defendant if you're on the prosecution side?
1: Yeah, uh, M. Carpenter. All right, that brings it up. So we got to ask you. You've got to have a jury story, right, where you're just sitting in the courtroom and you're just staring at somebody like, how are you breathing? How are you a (laughs) functional adult, right?
0: Well, uh, you know, we don't, the jurors don't really participate in the trial. The most you get out of them is the answering the questions in voir dire. And so I don't have uh, a story there, but when I talk about, you just never know what's going to sway a jury. Um, when I was a new lawyer and I was trying cases in magistrate court as an assistant prosecuting attorney in the small county here, um, one of the jurors after a trial, which I lost, um, you know, it was a, it was a domestic assault case when a man was accused of um, putting his family in fear. And what was happening is the mother was driving in a car and she had kids with her in the back of the car. Or I guess they were in a van and the husband was coming after them, driving behind, and he was ramming their vehicle from behind. Fortunately, no one was hurt but there was an assault charge uh, based on, you know, that he was putting them in fear of, of being hurt. And um, the children involved were very young, two or three, four years old. And the question came up from the jury because I had to prove that they were all in fear. That was one of the elements of the crime. And the jury wanted to know, could they just use their common sense of, you know, what they know of children in order to determine whether or not those children would have been scared when they're being, you know, their vehicle they're riding in is being rammed from the back. And somehow that actually ended up in an acquittal um, for the father involved. Uh, I guess the jury didn't think these little kids would be afraid that, the, well, the car they were in is being rammed from behind. Um, but in talking with the jury afterwards, um, the one of the um, court personnel said that the juror did not like my outfit could not believe what that prosecutor was wearing. Um, (laughs) What I was wearing was a plain black jacket and skirt with a, um, I guess it was kind of like a leopard print shell underneath. It wasn't super bright. It was like a brown and black printed leopard print shell underneath of this black jacket and, and in the skirt suit. And she just could not believe what that prosecutor was wearing to the point that she, you know, mentioned it to the court personnel. So, you know, I don't know. Did that play into the decision? Did they did they acquit that uh, defendant because they didn't like what I was wearing? I don't know, but they felt enough strongly enough about it to to bring it up. So <laughs> there you go.
1: Not your Not your lucky go to court outfit, I reckon. M. Carpenter joining us. <laughs> this piece has gotten quite a bit of play. It's actually gotten up by a couple of different publications. DNA doesn't lie, but people do. It's at ordinary-times.com. We will link to it. Uh, let folks know where they can keep up with you and follow you until we get you back on Tell again, and we're glad to have you back finally, my friend.
0: Yeah, happy to be here. Uh, you can find me on uh, Twitter, and I will call it Twitter forever, WV Esquires at Twitter. You can uh, clarify if you'd like, but that's where I can be found.
1: Yeah, we're not doing none of that X stuff. <laughs> the always wasmonious and lawyery law explainer, M. Carpenter. Thank you so much for the time, ma'am. Thank you. All the music on Herd Tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over a 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. If you feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse, this is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcasts or at www.thesweatypenguin.com.